The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media U.S. From Health 2023 in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's the MM&M Podcast with Publicis Health. Hi there, I'm Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MM&M, and I'm pleased to be joined today at the Health Conference in lovely Las Vegas by two special guests. Hi, I'm Sue Manber. I serve as Chief Patient Officer at Publicis Health. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. Hello, this is Oz Demir. I am the Head of Digital Marketing at Genentech. And I understand that before you came in here, you had kind of talked offline about how you want the conversation to go in terms of the work that you've done together. And Sue, I wanted to defer to you as it relates to the ophthalmology space and some of the progress you've made in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, having just come from our session, we were talking about head first into health equity. There's an approach that we're taking that we say, you know, there's so much going on to ensure that we're really supporting all people in an inclusive way. But the way we think about it is that there's three C's of equity-centered design. And those three C's are clinical, commercial, and community. And what we're finding is that by deploying our insights and our data and our understanding in all of those areas and really digging into understanding what works, but not just alone, how we can effectively partner um, life sciences companies, health systems, but truly in the community. Because I think we all can agree that fundamentally all health actually happens in the community. So we had kicked off a program that was all about within the ophthalmology space, there's, we said, open your eyes to diabetic blindness. And the problem was, this is a major problem and it's a huge problem in underserved communities. And we need to remember, those are both racial diversity as well as rural populations who just don't get access to care. So the approach that we took was to say, you know, in order to be treated effectively and screened effectively, most people who are underserved can't take off a day of work. They don't even know where they're going to go to get screened. So we always talk about bringing the care to them, but we literally brought the care to them. But we understood in some of these populations, there were day laborers who always showed up at one place at 6 a.m. hoping for work. They couldn't take that day off. But if we went to them and we helped them understand that we can screen you right now and we use tools and very simple SMS-based technology to say this is where it's going to be, it's completely free, and we were able to triple the engagement. And this program is still running today. The key, though, was partnering with, in this case, it was Geisinger in the Pittsburgh area. And so bringing it into an integrated health delivery system where we could not just do the intervention, but measure it, look at the EHRs over time, and understand exactly where and who we were driving incremental screenings for better treatment and better interventions earlier, which we always know works. So to me, what I love about this story is that we have to be looking at all the pieces of the pie in order to say, we want to drive real impact, you got to measure it to start it, but you need to figure out together. We're, we're not all individually in silos going to solve these problems. We have to work together. Yeah, what I love about that example is that actually it starts with data and it starts with insights, right? When you do your research and when you, when you understand the pain points, then you say, oh, okay, the pain point is these populations are actually not able to take a day off. Great, that's the insight, right? And then you start building solutions. I think a lot of times we see solutions being built before you have an actual insights and before you really understand 
the population or what that segment of people are, are going through. And then you design a solution that actually tries to fit everybody, but you know, it fits nobody. So that's the reason why I really like this. And then when you do that, when you identify your strategy, pain points, and then you basically build solutions that are related to, to those pain points, of course, it's not surprising that you see results. And the fact that you have you know, more engagement there and, and better ROI, it, it's, it's proof that when you, in, in my perspective, right, because I'm in marketing, when you do good marketing, sure, you're gonna get better results. It's also gonna mean that you're gonna have better health equity outcomes because you're gonna really identify people that have not been served or have not been um, consulted in terms of what they lack or what they need, and now you're finding solutions for those. That's a great point, Oz. And I think from where I sit, you know, I spent most of my career as a commercial marketer. And then, you know, as I've shared with you, you know, I became a rare cancer survivor. And through that journey, I realized, you know, my background in commercial marketing helps me understand what really fuels life sciences companies. Because in the old days, they were sort of like, you know, no, no, go away, you commercial lady. We've got advocacy people for that. And I'd be like, no, no, but I'm an advocate. So I think it's really important to understand where the pharmaceutical industry is coming from in terms of the investment in their research. And that's why back to the three C's, we know in marketing, we will never be able to have a powerful claim in the world if we didn't get it in our label from our trials. We know that we don't have enough people in our trials. And the first place to start is, did you even ask? Less than 5% are ever asked to participate in a clinical trial. So let's start there. And we know some of the reasons for that is because of unconscious bias. All too often, oh, you don't have good English. Oh, you have Medicaid. Oh, you know, we don't think that you will be adherent for whatever reasons. And so they don't even offer. So I think simple shifts in protocol. And we just did anecdotal for sure. But I interviewed a radiation oncologist who said, you know, we were just sucking at doing diverse clinical trial enrollment in an area that was diverse. What's wrong? And they literally, together, we changed one protocol. It was literally every single person who touches a patient offer clinical trial information, every single one. And they went from less than 2% to 60% over two years. Now, anecdotal for sure, we've got to prove it out. But to me, this is where the, the different perspectives lie. And then now come back to our big data offerings. And this is where I think I said last year, I felt like I was a kid in a data candy store. And people are like, like, what do you mean? And I said, it's because I wanted to be able to put these data sets together, but we weren't allowed. So finally, we've spent the last three years building a HIPAA-compliant, high-trust-certified way to combine a real-world five-year look-back of clinical data with our Epsilon acquisition, the lifestyle data. So we truly can understand people holistically. And we're seeing this have great dividends in clinical trial recruiting because we can find that, you know what? IE criteria are identical. Very different humans, very different motivations for why they might enroll in a trial. And so what we're finding is by tuning our creative, and we just got results back that I'm really excited about, we were given 60 days to find 30 patients. We did it in five. 
five more days, we had 85. They were like, stop, <laughs> we can't anymore. Now let's see how the rest of it goes to enrolling. But the difference of this approach is we're going to where they are, we're finding the data signals, and then often we're finding you may not be anywhere near a clinical trial site, but you may be with a, a doctor in a regional health center that we've never thought about engaging them in the research process. So the idea of community investigators as well. So all of these things, I think, come back to the, we have to keep testing and learning, but you know, I like to say, instead of testing things to death, let's test these things to life. Let's see what works and keep doing that. We, we love all of our children. We know some work better than others, right? That's great. Um, there are two things I want to address. The first one is about the silos that you mentioned, right? Advocacy says, I do advocacy, commercial, you do commercial. Um, I have seen similar things for health equity where you have a department and they actually put goals for health equity. And then a lot of other people say, great, that's in, their, in that team's hands. I don't need to do much about it. I think you want to see the shift from this is everybody's responsibility, right? It's, it's the same analogy to digital marketing. It's not like there's a digital marketing COE and you say, great, that team can do that. I'm just gonna do traditional marketing. It doesn't exist anymore. You have to always keep in mind that there are multiple departments that are not in silos, but they can work together. Advocacy can absolutely work with commercial. Health equity works with every single part of the organization. Secondly, about measurement, right? And about the technologies and the data that we have available, it really makes it possible nowadays in 2023 and beyond to find those patients, to find those HCPs, to find those caregivers that we did not know before that existed and had different challenges and issues. So that technology there is basically letting us say, great, we actually marketed to these 70% of the population so far. We actually did not know that there was this other 30% and they had different issues. So uh, those two points are, I think are really important. The use of data as well. There are segmentations that you know companies are doing and it's one layered. You just look at demographics and you say, all right, we're done. No, you're not done. There may be demographic information, but there's behavioral information. There's the psychological piece of that. And there's data in terms of behavior that you can glean even from digital channels and also offline channels, right? There are a lot of campaigns where you go to, for example, churches, you, you have pastors as your, as your influencers because those are the people that are making a difference in some people's lives as opposed to other populations that may not be actually frequenting those places. No, that's such a great point, Oz. I mean, when I think about, there's a fundamental truth that's kind of scary. More data has been created in the last two years than in all of human history. We're drowning in data. Nobody's lacking data. But I like to think of it this way, that data is actually people in disguise. And if you dig into your data and you understand the humanity underneath it, so you have the data for scale, but you need the ethnography for humanity. And you need to understand not just cultural sensitivity for where they're coming from, but how do you really understand them as full humans? And and frankly, you know, we, we, health is hard. We, we've been talking, you know, for the last couple of days here at this conference, there's so much complexity here. But I think the more people feel like it's a job, the less inclined they are to do anything about it. And, and I'm pretty much telling everybody, you know, if you haven't already heard about Blue Zones, um, check it out. There's a, a new documentary on Netflix. But the fundamental idea is that, you know, the research that's being done is looking at what are the places in the world where people live to 100 
and not just living, but living full, vibrant, healthy lives. That's what we all want, right? So now the research is showing us, well, what are the golden threads of the things that are in common with those communities? And we're seeing, you know, yes, of course, it's things like diet, but it's not in each of the blue zones. There was a, a, a cool data viz this morning. It's not identical, but it's the idea that connection to whole foods, people, animals, nature, those taking time, sleep, um, all these things. I mean, I gotta tell you, for years, I don't think I got more than six hours sleep. And now that I've actually learned how to sleep, like these are the things that you need to regenerate. But the health is fun, right? When you're healthy, you can do great things. You can play games, you can be outside. And so I think we need to reframe this of health is that awful thing that I have to deal with to no, no, if I actually deal with, we know preventive care saves lives. But sadly, half of this country does not have a primary care doctor. So we can say all you want at the end of a commercial. Go ask your doctor, but what do you do if you don't have one? So I think as we look at all the changes in the marketplace, certainly, you know, we heard um, Tracy Brown from Walgreens speaking yesterday on, you know, what I like to think of is it, it's reframing retail pharmacy as the new front line of primary care. How do you go into the community? So I think that's where the public-private partnership and breaking down the expectations of, no, no, that's your swim lane to Oz's point, and, and you do that. And yes, this is everyone's responsibility. And we're going to help give you the tools and training to, you know, be more open. And I, I always start with, and, you know, I'm a planner, so I always like to start with, just ask. Start by asking. Because all too often, and even here, how much amazing technology have we seen? How much of it started with a human insight and how much started because we had a cool tech thing that we could do. So to me, that's the amazing moment that we're at. There's never been a moment where there's been more development in digital tools, technologies. We've seen this huge explosion in femtech in all of these different places. But you know, to me, it's about bringing this together and then, of course, not having more of a divide between the haves and the have-nots. There is uh, so much to unpack there. One thing that I quickly want to add on is the data piece, because you mentioned you know data is is getting more and more. It proliferates in incredibly fast. Uh, we are going through a journey right now where we basically are saying you need to use more data. You need to do more data-driven decision making. However, data is not going to tell you exactly what to do. You're going to have to put it in context, like you mentioned, right? There's this data, it tells me one thing. It, it doesn't tell you the whole story. You have to put it in that context. You have to have the human insight. You have to sometimes challenge it. Hopefully most of the time you trust it and you make, you make a decision, but also that decision you have to challenge. You have to say, I made this decision, now I'm tracking what happens next. And then you validate your hypothesis. So you always say, yes, be more data driven, but don't leave everything to just numbers and machines. We were talking about the impact of Gen AI and how we are going to use Gen AI, right? I don't think Gen AI is going to take every single decision making from us. We'll benefit from it. We'll make, it's going to basically make our jobs much easier. But I'm not trusting Gen AI to tell me uh, how to make sure health equity gets much better. I can get some ideas from it, right? Like a brief summary of what I could do, what are the steps I could take, but I'm going to take that and put it into human context. I think I'll know, and you will know, and as a team, we will know human suffering and human pain points, and what does that make us feel like better than the Gen AI or any, any data or technology that we could have access to. 
That's so important. And, and you hit on trust. And I want to come back to that because at the end of the day, we know that what we train these models on can be problematic if we're not inclusive in the way that we train the models. And, you know, in the same way that data privacy is everyone's responsibility, right? We need to make sure that we're training our models appropriately. And, you know, none of us, I think, a year ago thought we would be here where we're asking ChatGPT to do anything from, you know, I'm stuck, write my first, you know, approach. How would you crack that code? And that's an amazing tool. Now, I have to sit here and say it's an A to creativity. It's an aid to judgment. We're never going to lose the human element. Um, and, um, you know, if you're a fan of um, Abraham Verghese, did an amazing podcast a few years ago, we have to remember that there's certain parts of medicine and health that it's physical, the power of touch. And, and remembering that as much as we've seen advances in telemedicine and additional access, there are times when it is just that trusted relationship and you trust the doctor when you feel that you've been seen and heard and listened to. Now, I'm incredibly fortunate. Um, you know, when I was diagnosed, I was literally told, mm, average prognosis is five months, get your affairs in order and figure out who's going to raise your kids. That's a horrible moment. But I was blessed because I had the opportunity to put together a care team across three hospital systems across the country with the leading research and experts. And I even knew that some of this research was going on. But now a lot of the work that we're doing is saying, well, that shouldn't be limited to the handful of people who happen to know who to call, right? I mean, we need to expand the ability for anyone to be able to get treated. So when I look at some of the work of people like Dr. Lisa Sanders on diagnosis, so where she figured out how to crowdsource solutions for underserved populations, one of the gentlemen who was at our event earlier said, you know, I'd provoke you to say, instead of underserved, think of them as priority. Because if we get that right with them, then we're going to also be there for the more privileged populations. And I thought that was such a great point. And I almost caught myself in like, maybe we do need different language around what we're talking about. Because, you know, they're not defining themselves as underserved. But we know there's 50 million Americans today live in medically underserved population areas. So let's tackle that. And that's where, you know, we say all the time, but I, I think it bears repeating. With all the advances in genetic medicine in the last decade, so exciting, but we still can tell you more about a patient's outcome by their zip code than their genetic code, and we're out to change that. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we tackle those zip codes and we put more care to those places. I don't. I don't even know where I go from there. <laughs> there was so much. That, there was so much that was set off of one question. I think there's a lot of very um, cogent and important points for our audience. I think kind of tying it all back to maybe actionable items for leaders and for marketers that are going to be listening to this is what is step one. I'm sure there are a lot of people that maybe share the and have a like-minded nature of saying, "I want to be able to do right. I want to be able to communicate and focus on these areas." But where do I even begin? You can't. You can't boil the ocean. So what's what's a good first step or best practices that maybe they can follow? Well, I go back to ask the patient first. And then to Oz's point, don't just start looking around, like formulate based on what you've heard from the patient, what are some of your hypotheses of what can really make a difference? And that's where the rigor and discipline comes in, in terms of that design. I, you know, my dad always said, measure twice and cut once, right? So it's like, make sure your data design, your analytics approach is sound. And that once you start finding those learnings, act on them. 
but continue to evolve and optimize. And I think that ability to, you know, let's not throw up. We've learned a lot in the last three years. Instead of just throwing that out, say, all right, what's really working for us? What's not? And where do we go from here? That's a great point. Maybe one more thing to add is start by looking internally and create a diverse workforce that can bring those different perspectives and ideas, right? We have so many blind spots. Um, When we hire people individually, we look for special skills and and requirements of where you went to college, where you went to work. But it's more about what are we lacking as an organization? What do we lack as a team? How can we bring in these colleagues, people that can give us that edge that, you know, we don't have right now. And then those people are going to help us go to market differently. And they'll say, hey, you're actually missing this. Or I actually know this about my community that you don't have access to. And now that can give you a different perspective. So I would always say, if you start internally and try to build that workforce that is diverse enough with different perspectives, that's going to equate to you going to market with those different perspectives too. I love that, Oz. And in fact, I, I got in a lot of trouble for this when I did this. But at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were trying to say, how do we get a more diverse workforce in this moment of emergency? We we're like, well, let's rip up our job descriptions and start over. And people were like, what do you mean? And I was like, do they have to have a master's? Do they have to have that? Is there other experience that they may have that could be valuable? So I think we have to reframe our minds in terms of our expectations. If we always go back to the same universities and the same places to get the same people, you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing. So I think we also have to search in different places for our workforce. But I know three things to be true. And I literally wrote this on my very first resume all these years ago. And they've been my core beliefs to this day. Question everything. Not in an obnoxious way. But just to say, is this all absolutely right? Just because it's the way we've been doing it. Diverse minds attacking a problem from different angles always yield a better result. And relationships are the key to selling breakthrough ideas. And you can form that relationship day one because people feel heard and connected and trusted. Very powerful advice and great insights, obviously, for our audience. Is there anything else on this topic that you think is meaningful to throw in that anything maybe we haven't covered? We've, we've got a wide swath there. Yeah, I mean, there is so much to think about here, but um, we, we need to ask people for help, right? Not one person knows how to tackle this. It's impossible. And maybe even our organizations don't know how to tackle this, even though we have a lot of people. We need to ask for help. We need to build these relationships with communities as well. And uh, I think I love what you said, right? We have to challenge everything. We, we have to make sure that we go out of our boundaries. Um, I, I really think that diverse workforce is going to help us get there. Um, but I also, you know, we were talking about, is this top down? Is this bottoms up? How does that work? My final thought on this is it has to go both ways. You have to have every single person feel accountable and responsible for pushing the agenda. But that's not enough. You also need higher level goals that are going to push every single person in the company to, to get there. I actually want companies collaborating and having goals that are not just company by company, but industry goals. Maybe, you know, goals that are Um, Just not for pharma, but like technology and pharma coming together. And then you know this, right? Companies compete for everything. I want companies to compete for how do we create better health equity as well. Um, By collaborating, sure, but also by thinking, how do I get there first? How do I make a bigger impact on society? I guess I would just land on, we pay for treatment once people are sick. And we think of healthcare as for sick people. 
But we know that preventive care and early detection saves lives. We need to invest more there. We need to change the way the care is being paid for in order to really drive equity. But we know that it works. So I think we just need to keep pushing that. Awesome. Well, Oz and Sue, really appreciate you being on the show here and being able to offer these insights for our audience and taking the time not only to join us on the podcast at Health, but also participate in our Head First into Health Equity panel, which was a rousing success, both from what I've heard from the panelists themselves, along with the attendees. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.